Inflation data looks good and M&A heats up in the copper space. You listen to Kick a Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Paul Harris is with us. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? And Kiko favorite, Rick Rule is back. Rick, how you doing? Life is very good. Thank you for asking. Uh, Rick, there is lots to talk about with gold pushing up against $2,000 an ounce. But first, what have you enjoyed the most since leaving Sprott? Interesting that you asked that. I'm just back off a three-week vacation to South America. uh, And I had the opportunity, among other things, to spend uh, four days tracking Puma. uh, And not merely tracking them. Over the course of four days, we saw 12 of the beasts which probably doubles my lifetime sightings. So the ability to spend time hiking on something that doesn't involve a, a mine or an oil field uh, ha- has been a real joy a real joy to me. And I look forward to doing more of that in the future. Let's turn to macro. Uh, precious metal prices traded mostly sideways for the week with gold trading around the 1980 level and silver at 24. Precious metals got a boost end of week with a key U.S. inflation report coming in that was less than hot. February personal consumption and expenditures or PCE price index rose 5% year on year compared to 5.4% the month prior. PCE is the other measure of prices paid by consumers for goods and services. Copper here was relatively flat, just under 410 a pound. And last check, WTI was in the mid 70s. WTI crude, by the way. Key economic data that can move metals and markets will be the jobs report next week and CPI report due April 12th. Paul. Tell us about those uh, copper M&As. Well, before we get to that, uh, the government of Canada gave some tax incentives for electric vehicle manufacturers as part of the 2023-2024 budget as it seeks to attract investment in the low-carbon economy. These include a tax credit for 30% of the cost of machinery and equipment for the production of clean technologies, including the extraction and processing of critical minerals. It also implemented or will implement a 2% tax on share buybacks. Turning to copper, Lundin Mining is to buy a 51% interest in the Casseroni's Copper Molybdenum Mine in Chile from JX Nippon Mining and Metals for $950 million US dollars. Lundin will also have the right to acquire up to an additional 19% interest for $350 million to bring its ownership to 70%. Casseroni's is a porphyry copper molybdenum deposit situated between the Maracunga and El Indio belt and is part of the emerging Vicuña Copper District where Lundin Group companies own a number of deposits. First Quantum Minerals is to buy a 55% interest in the La Granja Copper Project in Cajamarca, Peru from Rio Tinto for 105 million US dollars and fund 546 million towards the completion of a feasibility study and advancing the project towards an investment decision. La Granja hosts 4.3 billion tons of copper, uh, sorry, 4.3 billion tons of mineral grading, 0.51% copper, and it will cost at least $5 billion to build. In Ecuador, a court revoked the environmental license for the $3 billion Urimagua Copper Molybdenum project, which is a joint venture between Chile State Copper Company Cadelco and Ecuador State Mining Company Enami. The court said that a 20 14 environmental license violated the rights of nature and that there was a lack of environmental consultation by the Ministry of Environment. Activity on the project must stop until Enami submits a new EIA and environmental management plan. Uramagua has the potential to produce over 200,000 tonnes a year of copper for 27 years. Finally, 
Brazil's Valley agreed to pay a 56 million US dollar fine to the United States Securities and Exchange Commission to terminate a lawsuit about tailings dam safety charges related to the 2019 Brumadinho disaster without admitting or denying the settled claims. Now, Rick, my Twitter feed is full of people who are bullish on gold juniors, especially with this gold price. I will note that the GDX, that gold index, is up 18% for the month, but is still significantly off its 52-week highs. Well, I think that uh, your Twitter feed is right in terms of direction, but I think they'd be, they may be wrong in terms of timing. Uh, I believe that the sort of macro climate that we live in means that an increase in the gold quote itself, certainly in nominal dollars, is almost certainly inevitable. It may or may not be eminent. Uh, and those portions of your Twitter feed who like the junior mining sector need to refresh their memories about the fact that when we go into a risk-off environment, that the riskiest assets on the planet <laughs> are non-producing uh, exploration companies. To the extent that those portfolios are very, very, very long, the smallest exploration companies, particularly the smallest exploration companies without a high-quality pro project, what though that Twitter feed may come to understand is that the gold price can go up, but the shares of companies that inconveniently don't happen to have much gold will continue to go down. Uh, we can get into that dichotomy later in the interview, but I really truly do believe that the wind is in gold sales as a commodity for a lot of reasons. Uh, I believe further that the large gold companies in particular, when their valuation metric is measured by the delta between their net asset value at current commodity prices and their enterprise value, uh, I believe that the quality gold companies of all sizes, the quality ones, are as inexpensive as they have been in a 45-year career. I would just caution people that the next two or three years will be a time to err themselves on the, on the part of caution. Let's uh, break apart uh, those pieces then of uh, the gold sector uh, space then, Rick. So um, I'm guessing right now, so uh, the producers, uh, the intermediates, anybody that's actually producing, because uh, we're going to be heading to Q1s. And I mean, uh, with these gold prices, they should just be screening right now. But uh, everything is just a little bit soon for the juniors right now. Yeah. And I wouldn't say among the bigger companies, anyone. Uh, I suggest that if you define the universe of large gold companies in the world as 35 or 40 companies, there are probably 15 that are viable. Hmm. Uh, I think that it isn't enough to produce gold. I think that you have to produce gold profitably. <laughs> I think you have to have an exploration and development pipeline that is viable. Uh, I think your general and administrative expenses relative to assets under management and relative to EBIT uh, have to be reasonable. And if you begin to apply those very simple screens on the gold universe, uh, what you find is that there's a subset, perhaps 40% of the issuers, uh, that are attractive uh, and 60% that are not so attractive. How hard is the financing situation for juniors right now with uh, the uh, change that we've seen in the tightening? 
Uh, I think the financing scene is very, very healthy, which is to say that the lame halt and the blind uh, are unable to attract financing. And the high quality management teams with good reputations and good investor bases or the high quality discoveries or deposits uh, have ample access to cash. I note that despite the tight the tightness in conventional bank financing, that the non-bank mining financiers, the Sprots of the world, the Orions of the world, the triple flags of the world, uh, are cashed up <laughs> uh, and eager to go. What that means is that the people who deserve to get money in this environment are going to get it. Uh, and the people whose uh, financing, the people whose projects are somewhat more questionable, uh, hopefully will die on the vine. Uh, is that all the way down the stack, um, uh, Rick, uh, right down to the grassroots and the exploration companies, even if you have somebody that's quality there? I absolutely believe that to be true. The high quality explorers, uh, the high quality developers are, are having no difficulty uh, attracting cash. Uh, I have myself in the last 12 months probably put forward 15 proposals to companies to finance them. And in every single case, I was outbid. Uh, if you are a check writer for quality projects, including quality junior projects, notice I said quality, uh, there is a lot of money available. If you are a Me Too junior, uh, you know, if you're doing something that you haven't had a successful track record of doing, if your project is in the middle of the range by way of quality, you aren't going to raise any money. Uh, and that's ultimately healthy, both for the investment community and for the exploration community. Uh, Rick, uh, I wonder this, and this would be kind of in uh, Paul's uh, Ballywick, but, um, you know, as a Czech writer, um, there's been such a hard swing to uh, first-tier mining jurisdictions just around safety, uh, just around uh, ESG issues as well. Is there a bit of an arbitrage opportunity for uh, investing in um, countries that, uh, how would you say, are not in the first-tier status? Uh, I think that's a very accurate comment from a different point of view. I don't believe there's such a thing as a first-tier jurisdiction. Uh, I The idea, as an example, that uh, a country that is imposing the same type of uh, fiscal and political restrictions that the United States and Canada are on extractive industries means that from my own point of view, they don't deserve the sobriquet first-tier. Uh, Chile, too, politically is striving uh, to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, turning back 40 years of progress in the mining business uh, in, I think, an ill-considered uh, attempt at populist politics. So I would argue that there isn't a, a first-class mining jurisdiction. There are some sub-jurisdictions within the United States and Canada. Uh, I think, as an example, Quebec, uh, the local power infrastructure, Quebec Inc., Inc. if you will, uh, makes Quebec an unusually attractive permitting jurisdiction. I think Saskatchewan is probably uh, a good permitting jurisdiction. I suspect with the increasing level of indigenous input in none of it, the Yukon and in northwestern BC, that those jurisdictions will improve. But I would argue that Canada as a whole uh, is not a first-class jurisdiction. Uh, and the United States uh, outside of Nevada, Wyoming, and Alaska, uh, I think is a disaster. Uh, I, in my own mind, have learned that I would rather take so-called political risk than take technical risk. I have learned, too, that the ability to discover tier one deposits 
is the greatest in places that haven't been explored very thoroughly. So I find myself in such lovely jurisdictions as Congo, <laughs> Malawi, <laughs> Kazakhstan, uh, not because I'm a huge fan of their politics, but rather because I'm afraid of my own politics. And I'm always attracted to tier one deposits, almost irrespective of jurisdiction. You will note, I think, that I'm very lonely in that regard. But I continue to believe it to be the case. Now, uh, Rick, uh, I've been uh, following you for a while and uh, seen your presentations, and uh, you've always been uh, chafing uh, or, you know, um, uh, a lack of respect, I guess, uh, from uh, governments, especially from uh, North American governments. Uh, isn't there been a sea change, though? I mean, in this, uh, you look at uh, Paul uh, recently announced uh, Budget uh, 2023 uh, with uh, some of the initiatives that came out, as well as uh, the focus on uh, permitting, as well as the focus on uh, infrastructure. Uh, you have uh, what has happened with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, last summer uh, down in the U.S. Um, you know, talking to uh, Jonathan Evans, for example, Lithium Americas, as much trouble as they had uh, pushing through their Thacker, he was saying himself uh, that uh, you see that there, there has been some focus uh, regarding permitting. And uh, also you're seeing this from, uh, how would you say, um, that are um, from governments uh, that are considered left to center, Trudeau government up here in Canada and then the Biden administration down in the U.S.? If you look at the recent budgets proposed either by Biden or Trudeau, what you see is that they're ultimately inadvertently very gold-friendly because those budgets are a disaster for the economies and a disaster for the taxpayers. If you believe uh, in the mining business that you should take lucre from the devil, you become the devil's slave. To the extent that you create a larger government nexus in your project, because you're complicit in stealing money from other taxpayers and allocating that money yourself, you deserve what you get, which I suspect will never be good. Uh, the relationship that I would prefer with the government is that the government didn't know that I exist. Uh, I realize that that's a fanciful hope. But my suspicion is that the greater government involvement in mining, uh, the worse the mining industry will be. I'm I look with some amusement, as an example, at both the Biden and the Trudeau uh, attempts to fund, if you will, politically correct extractive industries uh, under the guise of economic development, when both countries have extremely viable, extremely viable, extremely competitive oil and gas businesses where the governments in both jurisdictions are trying to drive those industries into extinction. Uh, if Mr. Trudeau was really interested in the decarbonization of the world, uh, he would be uh, encouraging Canadian natural gas to displace the burning of coal <laughs> around the world. Uh, if he were really interested in uh, developing world-class Canadian uh, extraction technologies, he would be focused on Calgary, where the Calgary oil and gas service business is already world-class uh, and is already highly regarded around the world. The same for uh, President Biden. President Biden is in this odd position where he wants to lower gasoline prices. So he says to the oil industry, um, increase production, lower your margins, and oh, by the way, I'm going to put you out of business in 2030. The schizophrenia associated with these governments tells me 
that I, if I were relying on them for subsidies or lucre, I would need to understand that my relationship with them is a function mm. of polls. Uh, and I have absolutely no interest in being a slave to my enemy. Thoughts on copper and critical metals, Rick? Um, there's been a real change at the shows. Um, you're going to be talking about the show that you're going to be doing soon as well, too. But we've <clears> noticed <throat> it at Mines and Money. We've noticed it at VRIC. We see that there's less juniors that are in the precious metal space. And we see more about lithium. We see more about critical metals. What would you tell an investor uh, looking at, uh, you know, an investment in a gold and versus an investment in critical metals? I think they're very different investments. Uh, a gold investment, particularly an investment in physical gold, and I've done a lot of it, is an insurance policy. <laughs> you aren't doing it to make money. You're doing it to maintain your purchasing power over time. Uh, I am. I have a sort of an interesting outlook with regards to electric and battery metals. Uh, it is popular with the crowd, and for maybe the third or fourth time in my life, I think the crowd is right. Uh, I think the electrification of the world is a wonderful theme. I think it could be derailed in the near term by a recession or a depression. But I think uh, mining across a broad range of commodities is going to be challenged in the next five years because of society's underinvestment in exploration and the means of production for 30 years. We're coming into a supply cliff in a whole bunch of commodities. Uh, and in a different sense, there's increasing utilization of commodities uh, that hadn't been part of the uh, mining mix 10 years ago. So my suspicion is absent an ugly recession or a synchronized depression worldwide that we're going to have uh, shortfalls in the production of a broad range of commodities. Unlike many Western observers, I'm not sure that this is going to be completely driven by things like electric vehicles. Uh, I, I like to point out, and it'll be useful in the ESG discussion that we have later, uh, it, it's useful to note that a billion people worldwide have no access to primary electricity. Uh, another two billion people worldwide only have access to unaffordable or intermittent electricity. We've done a great job over the last 40 years lifting up the fortunes of the poorest of the poor, but there's a billion people who are still there out of eight billion people on earth. And poor people are having more kids than rich people. So the increase in living standards for the poorest of the poor is, I think, going to be the surprise driver in this electric and battery metal space. Your life is going to become more energy dense, but it's already energy dense. The three billion people on Earth who don't have access to your lifestyle, but who want it, uh, the parallel, of course, would be the urbanization of China and the incredible impact that that had on extractive industries in the period sort of 1998 to now, uh, I, I think is uh, a circumstance that's going to be repeated to the benefit of all of us around the world. And I think that that's really going to be the driver of these so-called electric and battery metals. Uh, let's uh, talk about uh, ESG, Rick. Um, I'm an investor. I'm going to be looking at a particular company. And then, uh, you know, these companies that are developing themselves, uh, the way that they often get in trouble is uh, through not uh, taking care of their uh, 
geopolitical risks, uh, taking uh, care of their particular concerns. And then you see some uh, companies that have just seen, you know, massive wipes out in valuations just because they weren't uh, communicating with the community. Uh, you mentioned, for example, a triple flag up at the top as well, too. And oh boy, they go back and forth on what uh, their ESG uh, credentials are. Uh, what is wrong with that uh, reasoning, Rick? Or is it a wrong way if I'm doing a real hard look at uh, what, how much outreach, how much uh, care that a company has for uh, the environment and for social governance, is my investment more protected? I think ESG is very important, but I think we're going to come to a more nuanced view of what ESG is. Let's unpack ESG, E, the environment. Uh, is the world better off with nickel, cobalt, and copper coming out of Sudbury? Uh, and produced in Canadian smelters? Or is the world better off having that produced informally by slave labor in Katanga? Is the world better off with high-quality Canadian nutrients, uh, ammonia and potash, where yields per acre have increased worldwide over 40 years fivefold? Or are we better off farming marginal soils and chopping down tropical rainforests? You follow where I'm going? Uh, e itself is nuanced. And I think if we begin to look at E from an arithmetic rather than a, a narrative point of view, that humankind and the companies will be better. S, social. Uh, how do the big thinkers of the world uh, feel uh, about uh, a billion people on, on Earth having no access to primary electricity? How do the big thinkers of the world feel uh, about 2 billion people having access to intermittent or unaffordable electricity? How do common voters in Canada feel about 700 private jets flying to Davos to tell them to drive less? <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? Uh, ES&G is important, uh, but ES&G needs to be put in the context of the advancement of humankind, including uh, or the inclusion of frontier market workers uh, isn't just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Look at the success that Barrick has had uh, employing African nationals, not just as mine laborers, but running mines. Uh, look at the benefit that humankind has got from the inclusion of women into the workforce for the last 40 years. If it makes you feel good to do it to right old wrongs, that's fine with me. But it's much more important that we have inclusion because the problems that we face require the efforts of 8 billion people, not just old, fat, bald, white guys like me. Uh, I'm all for ES&G, but I don't want it to come out of a comic book. Uh, I want it to come out of an engineering manual or a math text. Rick. Uh, looking ahead, uh, what are going to be some of the key developments in uh, the resource space? What are the things that you're paying most attention to or is there a company uh, or juniors that you want to give a particular call out to? Uh, I don't want to name names particularly because what I've learned uh, is that people assume three six months from now <laughs> when they watch this on YouTube that the recommendation is current. I've learned that these recommendations are um, – People don't take them in context, but let's let's talk about broad themes. I think we're going to see more M&A in the mining business. I think we're going to see it because larger market capitalization companies are li more liquid and they have a lower cost of capital. I think you're going to see it too 
because we need lower general and administrative expense in the mining industry relative to assets under management uh, and relative to EBIT. We are an overmanaged or at least overexpensed business. Uh, and that needs to that needs to stop. We're going to see it too because the biggest mining companies in the world uh, have deferred uh, new project expenditure and sustaining capital expenditures for 20 years, which means that they're they've in effect annuitized their business. Uh, they need development pipelines, and many of them don't have the means to develop those development pipelines without mergers and acquisition. <laughs> so I think I think M&A is going to be uh, a surprising theme. I think the conventional energy business is going to be with us in spades for a very long time. Uh, the big thinkers have, have suggested that peak oil demand should occur in 2030, 2035. My own suspicion because of the utility of oil and gas is that peak oil demand occurs about 2050 and then slides off for 40 years after that. So the net present value calculations that people are doing, I think don't, don't take into account terminal values. Rather, they take into account the preferences of a bunch of numbskulls. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm quite attracted to conventional energy, particularly conventional uh, Canadian energy. Uh, I don't think that Mr. Trudeau will be able to stand in, in, in the front of the aspirations of humankind. And when I look at his budget, uh, the amount of money that he proposes to spend relative to the amount of money that he has access to might even cause him to be rational with regards to oil and gas, if for no other reason than perhaps Calgary can continue to fund his fantasies. Uh, and I think that's true in my country as well. I, I, I think that Biden is smoking something that's only recently been legalized with regards to his energy policy. I think that we're going to see a, a rebound in the fortunes for high quality exploration because we have underfunded and, and misallocated to exploration for 20 years. And given the constrained uh, project pipelines that the industry has, successful efforts in exploration, I think, are going to be taken out at some eye-popping multiples. Not because the majors want to overpay, but but, they, be, but because they have to overpay. And I think, too, five years out, if we haven't suffered a major recession or depression, increasing demand, that supply shortfalls will do things to certain commodity prices. I'm thinking copper in particular, uh, that will really, truly surprise observers. The negative surprise, of course, could come from an economic slowdown. You can have supply decreases in the face of demand increases and not move price. But absent, uh, you know, a scary synchronized economic downturn, I think that the level of commodity prices, at least in nominal dollar terms, five years out will surprise most observers. I have to uh, bring it up, Rick. Uh, you mentioned it there as a follow-up. Uh, just talking about that M&A, um, Paul Harris was uh, interviewing David uh, Earthley and then getting comments on uh, Sabina and uh, the um, uh, its takeout uh, by Beta Gold. How would you say the uh, M&A, uh, there seems to be a theme that it's a bit, bit, a bit more circumspect uh, than it has been frothy in the past, which has been a bit of a disappointment to, um, bit of a disappointment to investors? I think that's a happy circumstance, and I agree with it. Uh, I think, as an example, Clive Johnson's pretty courageous 
to go after Sabina. I know that the Sabina team had done a great job in advancing that project, but it's a tough build. However, if you look at Clive's record in M&A, uh, going back 35 years, even to B2, to BEMA before B2, what you find is that he has been unusually ex uh, astute. He has bought assets during periods of time when other people's outlook for the sector was constrained. And his team has done a great job of building and operating the assets that he's been buying, trying to buy. So I'm very, very attracted as an example to that acquisition. Uh, I've been looking very closely at the Lundin action, uh, uh, acquisition of um, Casarones. I was, of course, involved in that company back in the days when Ross Beatty bought it uh, and built it up to what it was today. So I've been around the Casarones deposit for a long time. If the Lundins are successful in increasing the production at that mine up to nameplate capacity, uh, they likely do quite well. I'm obviously nervous uh, about a 0.36 grade. And the Lundines are going to have to operate that mine extremely efficiency, efficiently. But if they mine it to the standards that they've mined their other mines, albeit those are higher grade mines, and in particular, if they turn that mine to nameplate capacity, that likely is a good acquisition too. I say that because when you look at the history of Lundin mining and acquisition, they have never grown merely to get bigger. They've never bought something simply to increase their market cap or their trading liquidity. If you look at the return on capital employed that the Lundins have enjoyed in the mining business over the last 30 years, they're good at it. If you look at the M&A that the industry engaged in in the period 2000 to 2010, when they were growing for growth's sake, uh, when they were misallocating capital, because investors wanted to see them merely larger and more liquid, what you saw in that decade was the, was the destruction of about $70 billion in shareholder value uh, via idiotic capital allocation and misallocation in M&A. My hope is, of course, that the M&A cycle that we see now is much more strategic and rational. And I think the low opinion that the investment community holds of the extractive community means that the extractive community won't have the freedom to be stupid uh, that they had 20 years ago. I'm hoping that's the case. Let's do our number of the week. Guest always goes first. Rick, what's your numbers? Uh, boy, there was a lot of competition here. I, I like numbers. <laughs> the thing that I want to leave the Kitco audience uh, with, though, is uh, this following number. One half of 1%. One half of 1% uh, is the market share of precious metals and precious metals-related assets relative to other savings and investment classes in the United States of America, which, despite its faltering, is still 23% of the total savings and investment assets in the world. Uh, that one half of 1% number needs to be viewed uh, in conjunction with a different number, which is 2%. 2% is the median market share of precious metals and precious metals-related assets relative to other asset classes in the United States over the last 40 years. I would suggest to your listeners that quantitative easing, debt and deficits, excessive debts, negative real interest rates uh, are all factors that are uh, in gold's sales. And I would suggest to you that if, as a consequence of those factors, gold merely returns to its 40-year, four-decade mean, 
that demand for precious metals and precious metals related assets in the United States will quadruple. So my number for the week is one half of 1%, red in conjunction with 2%. And the probability, rather than the mere possibility, that gold reverts to mean. Paul, what's your number? My number is uh, shows why we like exploration, and it's 800 or 800% to be more precise, and that's the approximate increase in the share price of Patriot battery metals over the past year, which is advancing the Corvette Lithium Project in Quebec in Canada. They've been hitting very high grades and very big widths there and uh, going great guns. I'm going to keep with the themes of the panelists here, Rick and Paul, uh, with an optimistic number. And I think my number is the most optimistic. And that number is three, as in three consecutive months. China's March PMI provided further evidence of economic recovery. The official Chinese manufacturing PMI remained in expansionary for the third consecutive month, 51.9 versus 52.6 in February. That number comes from BMO. Rick, uh, before we go, what are you going to be hosting in Florida in July? Uh, Paul will be familiar with this, uh, and Kitco has been this in the past. Uh, this is, I believe, the 30th Natural Resources Investment Symposium, uh, a very long-standing conference. Uh, I humbly believe the best retail natural resources conference on the planet. We'll have great big-picture thinkers, but not the kind that you would see on CBC or NBC or CNBC. The Jim Rickards of the world, the Bill Bonners of the world, the Doug Casey's of the world, the people who look at the world from a different point of view, one consistent, I think, with reality rather than narrative. We will have two uh, great analysts, uh, people who are familiar enough with lithium and, and uh, uranium that they could spell them six or seven years ago, uh, not Johnny Come Lately's to the space. Uh, we will have two, uh, my favorite feature, which is the Living Legends. Uh, people who have built multi-billion dollar mining and oil and gas companies from scratch, talking about how it works where the rubber meets the road, how the lessons that they learned building multi-billion dollar companies made them better investors and can make you better investors too. At our conference, unlike most conferences, the qualification to be an exhibitor uh, is that we have to own you. Uh, at most conferences, the qualification to be an exhibitor is the check that cashes. There's no guarantee that because I own a stock, it goes up, but there is a guarantee that I've researched the company well enough that I've invested my time and treasure in it. Uh, finally, uh, unlike any other investment conference I know, if you pay the tuition and you don't think you got your money's worth, I'll give you your tuition back. Whether you attend the live conference or whether you attend the live stream, absolutely ironclad money back guarantee. If you don't think you got your money back, I'll give you your, if you don't think you got your money's worth, pardon me, I'll give you your money's back. I think you're linking uh, to the conference. It's July 23rd uh, through 28th in Boca Raton, Florida. And thank you for mentioning it. Uh, once again, the name of the show, Rick. Uh, Natural Resources Investment Symposium. Follow me at Michael McRae on Twitter. That's McRae with two C's. Paul is at Paul Harris Gold. Rick, how do people follow you? Best place to find me is ruleinvestmentmedia.com. If you go to that site, by the way, I'll give you incentive. If you list your natural resource portfolio there, please no pot stocks, please no crypto. I will personally rank your natural resources portfolio, one to 10. Comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. I've been able to do that for 80,000 investors over the last five years, and I look forward to doing it for Kitco listeners too. 
If you like what you hear, tell a friend. Don't forget to subscribe. On behalf of Rick Rule, Paul Harris, and myself, have a pleasant weekend.